Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the Point of Relation. interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Zenju Earthen Manuel, Ph.D., is a poet, author, and Zen Buddhist priest. The essence of all her transmissions comes together in her teachings and books. Her work has been featured in Essence Magazine, CNN, CBS News, On Being, Buddha Dharma, and Lion's Roar. She holds an MA from UCLA and a PhD in Transformative Learning from California Institute of Integral Studies. She formerly worked for decades in social science research philanthropy with major foundations, director for nonprofit organizations, including those serving women and girls, cultural arts, education, and mental health. Hello and welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit. Uh, my name is Thomas Hübel. I'm the convener of the summit, and I'm very happy and delighted and very curious uh, to sit here with poet and author and Buddhist priest, Senju uh, Earthling Manuel. So Senju, a very warm welcome, and I'm so happy, and I'm very curious to have our conversation today. So very warm welcome here. All right. Thank you, Thomas, for inviting me. And I'm very excited about the conversation with you. And um before we begin, I want to honor um, all those uh, who have come before me, uh, who are the reason why I sit here before you. I want to honor all the uh, teachers, sages, and prophets that have taught me and have walked with me, and all of those unseen spirits of uh, the various elements that have um, been with me, those of the fire, the earth, and the water. And I um, want to give thanks uh, and honor, at least, uh, the spirits of the indigenous, Native American indigenous who um, are, who were the caretakers of this land, who are still here taking care of much of the land, but not all of the land. And so I want to honor uh, what has happened and um, uh, on this land to their people and, um, and, uh, and bring the understanding that uh, we have yet to cede the land back. And so I just wanted to make that clear. So all of that I speak with, all of this I honor, and I'm grateful for those who walk the path that you walk, Thomas. Who walk the path of spirit. Thank you. 
Oh, that's so beautiful. It's so soothing. It's so like there's something very true when I listen to you. It touches me also. How you bring in the deep honoring of tradition. I, I often call this that's the the one tradition is the tradition of life. You know, yes. the lights being passed on from generation to generation. And I am so it's beautiful that you you know make such a dedicated space for that invocation and honoring. So thank you for that. It's beautiful. Thank beautiful. You. And I think especially in our often, you know, Western modern society in the hyper individualized self, everything is around me and what I'm going to do and around but the the recognition of of, of the depth that lives in us. And that I think that that brings us already to the to a deeper to the deeper matter of our conversation is like that I believe often trauma creates that disconnect also within our ancestral lineage and between each other and creates some kind of separation sense of separation mm-hmm. and um, and maybe maybe before we go into into the ancestral separation maybe you want to share with us a little bit since you you devote your life deeply to the spiritual path and um and that's something that's very close to me and i'm always interested you know what what was the initiating factor was that from the beginning from day one like that was there something that happened for you that initiated you into the spiritual journey and so maybe you can just speak to that a bit for us um yes i think the largest and most potent incident uh and earliest i'll put it that way incident that happened to me in my life was to lose a childhood friend uh, at six years old and i was amazed i was shocked actually that i um i even wasn't sure if the story was true. I had to go back and ask my older sister, did I lose a friend at six years old? And she said, yes, you did. And she was someone I played with. You know, we rode our bikes up and down the the block. Uh, She lived around the corner with her aunt. Uh, Her aunt was from uh, either Texas or Louisiana because the area had uh, migrants from Louisiana, black migrants from Louisiana and Texas lived in that area because you know, you just share places and work, you know, where to live and where to work when you come to a new state. And so um, this um, child, my friend, um, was living with her aunt. They hadn't been there long, but I, I really enjoyed the little girl's company. And so then when I heard that she died, you know, my mother was just like kind of talking, kind of like, uh, yes, you know, she passed. And before she passed, she asked for, uh, you know, milk and honey. And I was like, I didn't understand any of that, you know. And I I didn't understand how a child could die. And she hadn't lived her life. You know, that's all I could think of. And I actually, instead of being sad, I was angry. I was very angry. So it could say maybe my spiritual path was fueled by anger. In some way, um, I was angry to find out that um, you come into life and they talk about how beautiful it is to be born. And then you find out you're not going to get to stay. 
And I got very angry at my mother for having given birth to me. <laughs> she did not understand that. I was like, I wish you hadn't have done that. I wouldn't have to go through this. And, uh, and um, it, I took it very personally. <laughs> I was a child. And so it beca- began a, a query, a quest to look at what was life and you know, what was death. And I, I would think about it a lot at night, you know, you know, after experiencing the death of my friend, thinking about it, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to the uh, funeral. I guess I thought I was too young. I did eventually go to one, begged, begged and begged because I wanted to see death. I wanted to see what it looked like. And uh, I finally did at eight years old. It took two years to get my mother to take me some, to somebody's funeral. But I I didn't get to go to hers, but I would ride to her house every day on my bike. And there would be a a black wreath on the door. That's what they used to do in the old days, which I I still think it's a wonderful ritual so that everyone knows that this house is in mourning, you know, and you know where to bring the food, um, you know, what, you know, find out if they need anything. And then at that time, people wore black bands at that time. Sometimes people do that every now and then in different places, but you, that it gives you, um, notice that, uh, this person's in sacred space. This house is in sacred space and the people around them, their friends and their family are in sacred space. So I can articulate that now, but as a child, I could not, I could not understand what was going on. So I really feel like that was the beginning of me saying, I, I'm going to walk this path of query it really is what it was in quest. And I think truly that's what the path of spirit or spirituality is, is walking um, with a quest, with an inquiry about this life and, um, and discovering what is it and uh, that we're here for, or it doesn't even have to be what we're here for, just what is it <laughs> that this is? What is this flesh and bones? What is this that um, is born from a place we don't really know biologically, we could say, but where are we from? Where, where did you and I come from? And how did you and I come to be right here right now together how how and um and how will um and where are you and i going when we drop the flesh and the body and the bones we don't know and i think that that's that's kind of the most gnawing uh thing for people to not know. We have a lot of things we, I do. I can tell you all a lot of ideas I have, but we, we can share those, but we don't know. So that is still, that, that six-year-old is still in the quest, <laughs> still, <laughs> still walking the query. She is, and she's been through a lot of things like, oh, why this, why that, why that? You know, what is this? What is that? What is that? And, um, you know, it's been a, a wonderful life because I have had that innate kind of, you know, seeing life 
as some kind of, uh, you know, amusement <laughs> in some way. Mm-hmm. And it hurt too. You know, there was a lot of pain, but that too became part of the uh, the path of looking and seeing. And that's that's all all it is. I I don't I think that's all we're here to do. Personally, mm-hmm. definitely, you're transmitting the the curiosity and this joyful curiosity of your inquiry. You know, you're you're transmitting that as you speak. So that's very beautiful. It's uh, like I'm looking into this face uh, of your curiosity. That's lovely. It's beautiful. And so um, how did that influence, like you're, you're deeply into Zen practice, but you're also deeply into like the shamanistic tradition. Okay. And so often we meet people, okay, they say, okay, I'm a Zen practitioner and that's what I practice and that's going to be the practice. And, and I'm, because I'm also very interested in the, in the mystical practice. And I think that there, um, there are different levels to contemplative practices. And I'm, I'm curious why you thought that the confluence of those two are, are important in your journey or for for people that you teach so so maybe you can yeah. can tell us a little bit about these two streams and how they support each other okay um so first of all every gateway that i have entered no matter what that path is when i met um diviners from Dahomey at 18. When I went to church at six, okay, everything to me was a gateway that I just would just walk in and, you know, and then I would discover later I was someplace. But mostly something was driving me into the gateway of church into the gate because church to me was not something my parents pushed me into, although they did too (laughs) push me into that at the same time. So they wanted me to have God. So I would survive this life as, as a black child. And, and then um, there was the, I think the next largest was the gateway of the Dahomey diviners uh, from Africa. I didn't know where I was really. When I entered Buddhism or the Dharma or Buddhist teachings, that was the same thing. I entered Nishan tradition and I didn't know where I was. And I entered Zen and I really didn't know where I was. Mm. So all of these gateways, I would, I would just enter because they were presented to me to enter. I didn't decide what they would do for me, what I would get out of it. Can I be a better person? Will I be... Um, well, miracles happened to me. Um, I wasn't looking for anything probably other than a place to cry, a place to cry, a place to pray, a place to be joined in those things, a place for joy and a place for uh, a healing together, I think. We speak of that collective healing in action. That's collective healing in action. So I, I was used to being to doing my healing in 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 a collective way because of church. So um, and 
pretty soon, um, you know, even my social justice gateway was in the gateway of spirituality and of collective healing. We didn't bother with any kind of social justice if it didn't have anything, if it didn't have anything to do with our healing, our transformation, our survival, not survival in the world materially, because we could do that with each other, but our survival in our dignity as human beings was the most important thing. It wasn't important that we uh, get people to understand us, you know, to, to think better about us or any of those kinds of things. It was mostly just trying to, um, you know, understand our lives and, and live it fully. So I learned how to live it fully in a social justice movement based in the church, based in God. Mm -hmm. It was totally based in God. And it, that's the way it was. I mean, the movement, people came to the church um, to begin the movement. You know, at least in Los Angeles, where I was uh, raised. So it wasn't any other place but there at church in the basement where you fried chicken. <laughs> and uh -huh. you eat potato salad and you have chocolate cake and the places where you played and... And you met people from your um, from the back country, usually <laughs> from where we're from Louisiana or Texas, you know. So it was a really uh, vibrant and spiritual movement. And when I say it, I mean social justice was a vibrant spiritual movement. Mm. And so um, I was always, um, I guess. The aspects of each gateway, um, I think, came together, I guess, like I said, at that place of being able to bring one's whole self physically, emotionally, you know, spiritually, you know, anything. You just everything a human being uh, is made up of can be brought to it. And if I saw in a gateway that I could bring my whole self, whether I got there and someone said, no, it didn't matter. <laughs> I still could see that the practice itself was something that you could come to, you know? And um, yes, I was disappointed in many of the spiritual communities. You know, if I looked on the outside, if I looked outside of what was being taught, which I did a lot look outside of what was being taught in church. Um, I didn't leave the church because they were teaching hell and brimstone. <laughs> I did not. I left it because I could feel I had been there long enough. I had been there long enough. I was 17. I knew. And it was that it was time for me to go into another gateway that was being presented. Now, when do these gateways get presented? You never know. I was at a restaurant, a new African restaurant, and that's where I met the diviners. From, from, they started inviting me, you know, to ceremonies. So um, I think also where, where the gateways meet, excuse me, gateways meet for me, is in um in the ceremony so when i i just imagine for that moment 
that ceremony with the diviners, it was so different than the ceremonies that were happening at church. Now we had communion, we sang, we pray. And then when I got there, they were drumming, they were dancing, um, doing all kinds of uh, prostrations. And I, I didn't know who and what was happening. And I didn't ask for any explanations. I just kept doing and doing and doing uh, until they, decided, and I write about this story quite a bit, so some people know it, is they invited me to Dahomey, to Africa. They said, come back and take your throne, that you are a diviner. And I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find out they were diviners till 20 years later. So when the gateways open, we don't already always know, but there is for me a feeling uh, in my own body and heart that says, this is a place you can sit a while in life. You can sit in here and reflect and contemplate, ask questions, uh, be yourself. Even if someone doesn't want you to be yourself, you can be yourself. I don't know who's talking to me, who's saying that. Because when someone doesn't want me to be myself, I don't care because someone else said I could be myself. Not some person, but something in my own being that knows that. And so it's almost like I, I, I'm a being that already knows who's coming looking for home. And I think many of us do already know and we're always just looking for home. Uh, and that home, it, meaning not one place, um, not one dogma, not one tradition, but that home and that place in which we feel, oh, this is sanctuary. This is where my spirit can be held. And I too can honor it, my spirit. And then I too can honor the spirit of others. And then I learned how to do that, even if others have no idea of honoring me. I learned really young, somewhere between six and 10, that People were not going to honor me just because. And I, even if I worked hard, they weren't going to honor me. So it didn't matter, you know, that the honor is not something that can be forced, that people don't understand. I knew they didn't understand. I remember when I ran into racism and I said, wow, mom, don't they know I didn't do this to myself? I didn't make myself this color. They know that, right? You know, my mom was just shaking her head and crying. She had tears, you know, because she knew I had hit that place. And I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I, and, but I knew that it was a matter of uh, not knowing, you know, some place of naive, not that they didn't know any. Black people, that wasn't it, but something that was missing in the spirit of humanity. I knew it at that young of an age that it was something missing. And then I thought, well, that must be missing in me as well. And so I couldn't find that missing place in preaching, preaching, having preachers preach sermons or even Dharma talks or any of the things that we enjoy, books. I read a lot of books. I think it really came from the, the first time maybe, you know, I um, 
did go to that funeral and they were singing and they were they were doing things. You know, uh, my father was part of the ritual and I'd never seen him part of one. And I asked my mother, why does daddy have gloves on? You know, he had white gloves on. I didn't understand it. But, you know, and then I, I was just watching the whole thing and I got up with everybody to go see the body. You know, it's all rich. I thought that was just fascinating to me. And when I got to the body, I got traumatized, a little bit freaked out, but not, not enough to not look, you know, and then I went home, you know, so I, I, I feel like the spirit walk, the walk on spirit, the path on spirit is all shamanic. It's all ceremony. And when we talk about it, that's when, um, um, separation can begin. Not all the time, but it can begin because each one of us will talk about it differently, an experience that we all are having in common, but we're going to talk about it differently. We may talk about it from psychological, sociological, social justice, from pure energy, integral energy, all kind of metaphysics. There's all kinds of ways to talk about it. But once we start talking about it with each other, or trying to influence each other with our words about it. I think that's when sometimes the separation begins and that's okay because the ritual will bring us back together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally a ritual will do it. Mm, Beautiful. When you see now the ritual ceremony is because in the during the summit we're also exploring what what's a, what are collective remedies. Mm-hmm. So how how do you envision or how did you experience like ritual and ceremony as collective remedies when we look at collective trauma? Mm-hmm. Maybe you can speak. Yeah, to yeah, um, yes. I think um, from participating with many spiritual communities. And in every spiritual community, something happens, every single one that exists. And if it hasn't happened, you're not looking. But something is happening that disrupts, um, that is um, maybe horrifying, traumatizing to somebody. Um, And I notice that when that happens, when there's more talking, trying to talk it out, and talk about it. I think that's, I'm not negating that that's not a good path. But if that talking and work is pulled out, maybe some kind of model or something approach is pulled out without any kind of pre prep for what is what is about to happen before the talk before coming down some type of pre you call it you know spiritual prelude or something you know a, a prologue something before that must come so that the space is in the energy of that sacred space created before so not not even an, an action because so some people I've seen some people that they might um, who follow uh, various traditions might pour water. Some people offer incense. Some people, you know, sing a song. You know, all of these things are real important. But what I find is that part of the program is three minutes 
and the talk is three hours. And it should be in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> the ritual should be three hours. And the talk, three minutes, if talk at all. Mm -hmm. If you haven't felt anything in the three hours, a way of just being together and understanding that experience and trusting it. Because I don't think we trust it. I think that's why we talk about it a lot. I'm, I'm including myself in this now. I'm not looking at us, but it, you know, we don't trust that sometimes. We don't trust ourselves to be in a place in which there's been disruption and trauma and trouble and chaos and woundedness. And oh my God, we're not trusting ourselves to be there. So we're really trying to explain this is what's happening to me. So I think it's uh, important to kind of reverse, doesn't have to be three hours, but reverse the length of time we do the sacred part of our, our coming together. And I know that's kind of scary because a lot of people aren't into a spiritual path or they, they are not, you know, don't believe in any of it. And I just ask those people to respect for a moment what we're about to do by just holding space for us, you know, and witnessing. We, we need a witness that this has gone on. You can be the witness you, mm. you know, participate in that way. And you can be the listener, you know, to participate. You don't have to say, I'm doing this too, because we are not doing it. What we are doing is being it. And they, they don't know that because they're not engaged. They never mm. engaged it. They're always on the outside looking mm. in. And so I invite those people to stay on the outside and look in. It's okay. We need witnesses. We do. We need someone to say this, this happened, you know? And I think a lot of times we try to pull people in and um, I'm really not one to proselytize anything, any tradition, you know, um, people talk about meditation and I talk about meditation as that, place that sacred place created before you take action in your life before you talk to the teacher before you go to work before you do any of these things that have words or action and so that you are doing it under the influence it's kind of like i tell people taking an elixir make you know some everyone maybe had a drink or something you feel different after you have a glass of wine than you did before well that's what i'm talking about have your glass of sacredness, and you'll feel different when you when you get up and walk in the world. You know, you may even stumble. <laughs> you get too much <laughs> of it. <laughs> it. Might blow your mind. <laughs> but you know that that I think is uh, you know um, sometimes missing. And we also think out the rituals too much too as well. It's good to have a protocol. I believe in that too because. Um, it's there, but if we get stuck and this is how it should go, then when the spirit even disrupts that, you know, like, oops, then we're lost. And I've seen, I've seen that happen in, in Zen practice because everything's pretty. So I've seen that. I've seen a Kokio, this person who starts to chant and leads to chant and then has this wonderful, uh, what we call an echo in the end that 
to me, I kind of, with the Africans, would do it with their foot. They would just nail that prayer into the, you know, some Africans, West Africans, not all, would nail that into the ground, into the earth. Well, in Zen, the echo nails that chanting. You know, we chant, 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 chant. And then we say, we have chanted the Heart Sutra, you know, for the benefit of all, is nailing that chant into the earth, you know? And so you could say, really, I could do an echo right here in a moment, you know, like, you know, you're, you're chanting and then, you know, you feel something, you know, the echo is, you know, I'm going to echo the essence. Echo is actually a Japanese word and I'm using it as an English one right now, but you can echo the essence of that, of that poem, that teaching. So I have chanted the heart of great perfect wisdom and having chanted the, maybe you might show, show Samyo Kichijo Dorani. We dedicate this merit to all of those who are suffering, who are dying right now in COVID, who are, you know, trying to make a life after COVID, you can add what you want, you know, who have died in the streets. You can add what you want, what comes up. All of those who are disappointed in the world, include it all. All of those who left because they were disappointed in the world. So these are the ways in which uh, they're already there, many of our traditions, it doesn't matter. There is a way of bringing that prayer down. And then through that, after you feel that and you hear that, see if you can talk. And if you can't, what will you say? Is it what you prepared when you walked in the door? Probably not. The witnesses should continue witnessing. They haven't had the elixir. So they're going to talk maybe with what they came in with at the door. So I think, you know, meditation is not for everybody. I always tell people, please don't think you have to meditate. You know, there's, that's not, it's getting some kind of, um, how would you say, a supreme practice. <laughs> you know, it's not a supreme one for everyone. And it's only for those who want to dwell and, and, and want to feel into the depth of this life, even if you're not calm when you do it, even if you're traumatized when you do it, even if you need help to do it, that you will do it anyway. And uh, I mean, that's what I have had to do. I never meant to be a Buddhist priest. Never meant to be one. Someone told me I write poetry. Okay. They still today tell me, oh, that was poetic. I go, wow, it was. And to me, I'm just writing. I'm writing from the um, 
from that 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 depth of the silence and i am i'm writing from there so it has it's poetic <laughs> you know the action of that may be poetic you know so i actually you know you, you invited me to if i wanted to read a piece yeah, Same. and I think what I just said uh, fits what I might want to share with you. So from the deepest piece, I'm sharing um, the section called Poetic Solitude, um, the po Poetic Justice of Phyllis Wheatley, who was a slave as a child and still walked through the gateway of poetry. Mm -hmm. So powerful. So I wrote, um, candlelight accompanies the silence. Sitting at the desk in the spirit of Phyllis Wheatley, my poetry has a ride for the evening. I'm excited for such justice, for what I've endured. My fingers move fast. I try to settle down with deep breathing. A slow rhythm must be used in the transfer of words from their arrival from silence and their departure back into silence. These are moments that are slow, but ruthless, raw, and unintentional. I'm sitting still. I write to hear. What is there to hear in the midst of destruction? What is there to know about the nature of living on the edge? A silent justice speaks. Its message rises through the moment of birds, the running of water, the moonlight on barren land. Justice is open, empty space and time to gather a fresh collective song. The silence is doing everything. I'm not making the silence. Poetic action is coming from the depth of the earth. Writing is poetic action. Words go back into the silence once they are written, heard, or read. To cling to them leaves little space and time for the new message, the new witnessing, the new poetic solitude and action. Which way does the water flow after the storm? Despite struggles, I chop the onions garlic and minced the ginger, saute mixed with the boiled and peeled sasumi sweet potatoes, puree with boiled water, scented and flavored with lemongrass. There's nothing to do but let the meeting of the senses happen. Watch and listen. That is our collective action. That is our collective healing. 
that alone can be just a ceremony that can be done every day, every moment. Nothing elaborate. So I offer that as a way. Beautiful, beautiful. Maybe just because you brought it up now, like a short uh, side trail, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because that's something that I, uh, that I think it's very, it's very deep. That you said is that there is this, the deep silence is a birthplace of the creativity that arises for you in poetry, for somebody else's drawing or any kind of whatever innovation, mm-hmm. and um, and if people come to you that would you know come from a place where they say yes it's it's amazing but i don't feel any i don't feel the place of silence in myself i feel too consumed by my life and too entangled like what if any of our listeners you know like want to access that place of deeper silence is there anything you want to speak to yeah sure it's interesting you bring that up because Uh, Just this morning, I was listening to a podcast and a person um, who was a a spiritual person, uh, I think a Christian minister. Um, She was talking about contemplation and meditation and taking time to be silent was a, a luxury and a privileged place and that everyone is too busy to do these things, um, trying to survive, you know, take care of the children, go to work, you know, or deal with whatever is happening in their country. Maybe their country's under siege and all these kinds of things are going on. And, um, you know, I was listening to her and taking that in feeling, yes, for me, I was very privileged to be able to just stop my life and go into, um, the monastery, although I suffered and my partner suffered too financially and in different ways we suffered because of it. Um, and then um, I I did begin to learn how not, ha- not taking a whole lot of time away necessarily or leaving, you know, necessarily. But once I got uh, a training in how to walk with the sacredness that came up from being in the monastery in the meditation that I could walk with it. It didn't matter if I were in a post office and everybody was going crazy because the line had a hundred people and one person, you know, giving out stamps or whatever, you know, um, it's not so much that way anymore, but, um, I remember literally standing and everyone was yelling and screaming and they were trying to get me involved in arguing about the post office and how the post office doesn't um, have enough people and the people they have, they don't pay. And it was going on and on. And I was being a witness to that. I was participating because I was definitely, you know, giving a nod and, and, and affirming their feelings, you know, and knowing that feeling was going on inside of me too but I wasn't willing to join the aspect of agitation. I was only willing to hear and know it and feel it because I was feeling it too. And they were speaking my feelings. 
um, I stayed with this sense of I'm in the middle of a moment of life. And some people are going crazy. Some people have yet to even arrive to this craziness that's happening right now. And people were starting to come in the door. So I think that if we wait for our lives to be not busy or to not have chaos or disruption, um, to learn how to uh, hone and harvest silence, then I think that's how we feel sometimes. All of life has gone by and now I'm dying. So to take the time, you don't have to go to a monastery or a retreat center either, any of these things, but to take the time. And I think I have been doing that since I, I think that that childhood story I told you, the child who died, I had to take the time, even as a little girl, at six years old, to, to stop with the sobering reality that I was going to die. And I could die next week. I didn't have to grow up and die. I thought I had to grow up, at least get old. But that wasn't true. So um, I offer to um, students or aspirants who come to me to just start with the moments. That, that's the way I did. That grew into five minutes. That grew into 10. I, I try my best not to have long, long sittings for people, you know, because it's, if they don't understand what they're, they're doing and um, they're not coming to me to find out more, then that can be traumatizing. <laughs> sitting can be very traumatizing. Silence can be traumatizing, you know, for talking trauma. And so we have to do, take in only what we can handle. I only took in what I can handle. So yes, now I can sit every day. If I went to a monastery or went to say a, an intensive retreat or a long one, I can sit every day for eight hours, uh, you know, walking and breaks eight hours every day. But that started with moment by moment. So, you know, that must've taken many, many years, but some people start there. Oh, I'm just going to jump in and do eight hours every day, <laughs> you know, and it's, a, it's, it's just not recommended from me as a, as a teacher. I think some people do, they, you know, go on and struggle and, um, and suffer. And I, I just, um, I, I just don't like to see people suffer like that. Um, and there's different ways, you know, it's, um, Walking, some people may need to walk first, do the walking meditation first. So while some people who hone the sitting, let the others hone the walking. And somebody can hone the lying down and somebody can hone, hone the standing. I mean, there's just so many ways. Um, a lot of my stillness came from drumming. Now, is drumming still? I'm a drummer. I drum Congolese rhythms. Not too still, not too quiet. <laughs> But the, it, the arrival of what comes after the last beat, that arrival to that space, that silence is so full 
of the power of the earth after the rhythm. So one person came to me and she said, well, there's no drumming in Zen. I said, oh, but there's rhythm. Plenty of rhythm. Plenty of chanting. And there is drumming. But, you know, maybe she didn't hear it that day or that week. There is drumming. There's a wooden drum, so it's not the drum you think it is. It's, it's just a different place. But there is rhythm, and rhythm is very important. It's in every single tradition. I don't know a tradition without rhythm, without a way of bringing rhythm into the movement. That's why I love the spontaneous poetry that comes up in social justice movements. The rhythm just, it just comes right up. Even when there's a protest and they're shouting, I hear the poetry. I hear the rhythm. I love it. I love it. I just, you know, even though those places turn sometimes out to be unsafe, but, but there's kind of this natural, natural um, inclination to go toward the rhythm, no matter where we are, where we're going. And we know that it does something for us. We know that it, it picks us up here and drops us off there. We know that, you know, so does jazz have rhythm? You bet. Even if it's the quiet Miles Davis, it's just a long note, but there's a rhythm in that long note. There's a rhythm in it. So I think it's really important to um, take the time, whether you're busy or not, and um, not wait till you're sick. And then, oh, I'm not busy. I'm sick though now. Or wait till a vacation time or all of these things. Just have a moment every day, even if it's short. You know, because that wasn't 45 minutes. That was only two. Have one good solid minute of, of just stopping. Let's call it stopping, not meditation. Just stop. And what do you hear? Children screaming in the playground, birds singing, you know, gunshots. What do you hear? And how is what you hear impacting you and the collective around you? Not with words, just feeling it, using your body for that. And then you can go back to busy. You know? if you want, but I would bet busy will go away. Uh -huh. <laughs> <By little. laughs> you know, until you become a spiritual teacher, then you get busy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's <laughs> What I also love uh, when I listen to you is to participate in, in when, you, for example, when you describe the listening to the rhythm, it's also that the listening changes, you know, with the practice, also what you hear, like with how you listen changes and the depth of 
deeper aspects of rhythm in life or deeper patterns in life become more apparent. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the internal state that changes, changes also the world that we perceive or are able to perceive or the subtleties of the world. When I listen to you, like I get got a sense of like the deeper listening, like listening has depth and different levels of depth. And that mm -hmm. was really beautiful to participate in when you shared about it. Yeah. And one thing that I think that you started us off with that contributes to depth and you, you spoke periodically about it is like to hear the drumbeat of, of the planet. Mm -hmm. And and I think in in one way you spoke about it in your initial invocation. Um, when we honor the lineage, and you know, and a lot of trauma and collective trauma is built on ancestral trauma that has been passed on and created cyclic patterns in family streams and mm -hmm. cultures. And maybe you can speak a little bit from your experience, like how the honoring of the ancestry and our ancestors and also lineages like you spoke about them, uh -huh. the sages and the saints of the tradition. I think it's very powerful to be able to honor and bow down to the greatness of the ones that came before us. Uh -huh. So maybe you can speak a little bit about how that creates depth. Because I think that's, that's uh -huh. like um, at the base of depth. So maybe you can speak uh -huh. a little bit to the uh -huh. honoring the lineages uh -huh. and healing the lineages. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, they, from the first human, from the first human, they are begging us to do the healing, <laughs> the first human. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily feel that they, I don't, I don't feel any ancestors. I hear people say that. I don't feel anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they sit there and tell me their trauma and their suffering. And I go, that, that, that's, it's right there. It's right there. You're not new to it. You're not new to it. It's not new to humanity. What I suffer as a person of African descent is older than I can ever imagine. It's far beyond, far beyond any anybody that I can bring up. But I do know the ascension and it and that ascension is is the death. In that ascension of the dying and the going away and then coming into this pure consciousness of wisdom that I think happens for everyone. Even if that wisdom is just who they leave behind. Maybe it's not even them. It's who they leave behind, what they leave with us, the wisdom and the light and the, con and the consciousness. That, that is, is within us, and, and it's illuminating at, uh, through the ancestors. Illuminated as they leave, it's just illuminated back and reflected back. We are the same people that was, that was, that was, that was, before, before. We're the same. We're embodied differently. We have different conditions to live under, but we are, we're, we're those same people with the same um, uh, human 
conditions <laughs> and the same human consciousness, thank goodness. So which one, the conditions or the consciousness or the wisdom are we, are we holding, you know, for the healing? And so we might not be able to say, well, I'm going to heal the, what happened to Africans who were stolen and enslaved. I'm going to heal that. I don't have to go back and say that I'm going to heal that. But I can stop and say, I feel that same and know that same pain and know that same suffering. I wasn't enslaved, but I was. But here I am because so I've been brought forth from that place even before they were enslaved. I've been brought forth from that place to here, you know, to now. And um, the conditions of human beings are from that place, from when they were human beings, is here now too. The trauma, all of it's here now. So then how, how am I... I'm to hold this, I, to think that I can do it. I'll do this. I am going to end this right now for us. I remember trying to end something um, in my own family that was happening with the women. You know, it was some kind of, to me, similar abuses were happening to us. And I'm like, well, I think I'm going to, I hope this ends. You know, but it didn't mean, you know, I need to go like, let me tell you, you're doing the same thing mama did. I didn't need to do that. All I did was put the intention out and said that I wanted this to end. Now, whether it was going to end in my lifetime in the way I want it, I don't know. And I think that that's what we get caught up in. We get caught up in that we can do it and we're going to do it. And... In that process, we get all, you know, sucked up. <laughs> you know, we jump into the bowl of soup and we're like, oh, oh no. And so, you know, it's it's not us that that is doing it. But I trust that myself, that it's not us. And that what we're bringing with us is not only the trauma, we're bringing the wisdom and the consciousness. We're bringing that right in our in our uh, makeup, you know, in, in our DNA. And if we want to know who was there long ago, well, I see your grandfather. I see your great, 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 great. I know exactly how he looks. I see your great grandmother. Right? You can see mine. We, we can, they're still looking at each other. Through us, exactly, exactly. It was so powerful that they that 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 can happen. That the life and the light of the life, the source of the light, is just right here. There is a source of light. That's why when I say way way back there, where the source of life is, we're not the same because we're humans. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, we're all the same." We're not the same because we're human. We're the same because we're from the same source of light and life. It was a source of life that brought us. And each one keeps bringing that life forward, 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 forever. And what we do here may not be for us here in 2021. And I was told this by a teacher. It's for maybe 30, 31. And I was very disappointed. 
<laughs> I want my hard work to, I want to see the results <laughs> now. <laughs> I want to see the world change now. I want to see what I want now. Because I don't know if I'll be here or I'll be able to see, and I don't. You know, but someone of me will. Someone of me will. Not my, doesn't that be my child? Someone of me is still coming. Or it's here. Could be in my little niece, my nephew, or all the children I've taken care of could have been any of them. So I think that if we start to take action in a way that we we are doing it um i think that's when we get into trouble i think it gets we start reifying our trauma because we we can't do it i'm gonna tell you we can't we cannot do that but i remember asking uh, abbott you know they have this um ceremony called shosan and you stand up and you ask the abbott a question you know and some people were asking questions, you know, they had read some books, I could tell, <laughs> you know, very abstract Zen questions. And, and I got up and said, you know, I, I feel very wounded. Is it, is it possible I will always feel this way? And he looked in my eyes and said, yes. And I, and I put my hands together and said, thank you. And I, and I and you back away and then you bow some more bows back there, <laughs> you know, not to him, not bowing to him, bowing to the words that came from the silence, from the way, way back from the source of light that came through that person to me. That to me was the voice of somewhere else. It didn't say that I would die of the woundedness, <laughs> that I would suffer, that I would have a horrible life because of it. But that it would be there. And because it's there, that's when I realized that disruption is there. Woundedness is part of life. Destruction is part of life. Trauma is part of life. Then what am I to do? What am I to do? And I asked my students, how can you use racism? So we have, we, we have a, a pact. We're, we're an all black Zen Sangha. We're all black Zen. And that's very rare. So they, there's a pact you can't talk about white people. <laughs> so, of course, the first part is the beginning of our conversations, we didn't have any. Because <laughs> I go, nope, 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 nope. Because we're not talking about blackness juxtaposed to whiteness, we're talking about blackness. And we, yes, we do know there's an integration, but we're, we're talking about you and, and the evolution of that blackness and the, in you, in you and what it is. So I still get analysis. So if I ask, is somebody analysis, they have great analysis of whiteness. And then I ask, can you give me the same for blackness? What's the analysis for blackness? You're spending too much time out there. It doesn't matter if white, brown, there's any kind of, just anything out there. Because if you're out there, you're re, you just, I know for myself when I did that, I was re-traumatized every time I did the analysis. Okay. Okay. 
And then when I took this trauma, trauma into, in this woundedness into ceremony, because even when the teacher said, no, it's still there. And I went like this, something happened right there. Something happened to me, not only to me, to some people who were in the room, because they came to me later in tears. It was their thing. I didn't in, in, you know, get engaged with it, but it was interesting to see a simple question, a simple bow, and be touched to the point that something changed for us. Not the woundedness, but something changed in how we would walk with that woundedness. Because we were going to stay alive, wounded or not. But that means we had to walk, not for the rest of our lives, but walk out of that Buddha hall into the hallway with that woundedness. Just one step. We just talk from one step. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. So lovely. It's uh, very deep what you shared with us. Very deep. Maybe I'll share some more poetry. This is, um, in, again, in the deepest piece, um, Rattling the Bones, My Ancient Stories. The first breath of a spring day is surrounded by orchids in my room. Tension is hunted down in the body, then breathed out. Bones are let down from being folded up overnight. Deep breathing releases the dark river that pumps inside my body. This river can't be heard, but speaks when clogged. These bones can't be heard, but rattle when I remember, when I dig into an ancient story. The moment just passed is ancient. I remember it. My bones rattle. When still, I sense the bones of the earth the bones of those who crawled upon the earth or flew above clouds are the same bones inside of me. The same bones hold the same wisdom. Bare bones let us know life is impermanent. You don't have to believe Buddha. Accepting the passing of life brings the presence of peace. Thank you very much, Andrew. This was really amazing, amazing ride. There are all kinds of dimensions together. Exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. It was a great enrichment for the summit. So I enjoyed deeply your depth and the innocence and the openness of your curiosity, the depth that you're exploring it's beautiful so thank you very much thank you for inviting me thank you visit collectortraumasummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next collector trauma summit is announced thanks for listening to point of relation with thomas hoover stay connected by visiting our website pointofrelationpodcast.com and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.